Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to day 32 of OT with DA. Day 32. We are in the threes. Welcome to Instagram Live. Welcome to YouTube. So glad that you are traveling with us on this journey through a large portion of the Old Testament. Let me greet a few people here. Hello, Cheryl. Hello, DJ. Hello, Terrible Terry. Hello, Five Carsons 05. Hello, a whole bunch of people that are all grouped together. Hello, Cassandra. Hello, Chuck. Good evening, OT family. Hello. Hello, D Winter 2B. Hello, Marco. Hello, 12 other people that were grouped together with Marco. Hello, Jamie. Hello, Orchard View. Uh, hello, Itanel. Hello, Porter Six Pack. Hello, Kelly. Hello, Athomo. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Joe. Welcome, Shelly. Wow, from Dubai. All right, I'll take it. Hello from Maryland. Hello, Frank. Burn. The Inland Empire. Viceland 2 says the Inland Empire. I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. Palmer, Alaska. Wow, it's snowing here. And uh, I am actually a little bit cold. Fort Worth in the house. Oh, okay. Is that Inland Empire? Is that the thing? Hey, Jim. Good to see you, buddy. Hey, Victor Mills. Bro, we got to meet. I got to meet you. I'm hearing good things about you. Hello, Joe Loves God 44. Welcome, everybody. So glad you're here. I never got an answer on the Inland Empire thing. Hello, Gabby Abby. It's not an OT with DA if I don't say Gabby Abby at some point. Oh, Riverside Inland Empire. Okay, so that's a California thing. All right. Hello, everybody. I hope you've had an awesome day, an amazing day. Um, somebody asked me on the uh, Instagram Live if I was cold. Uh, the answer is no, I'm not cold. I'm actually a little bit warm, but... I actually went today and ironed like nine of my shirts. I don't know. I just, sometimes I just get inspired to iron and I was listening to a podcast and I ironed a bunch of shirts. If you follow me on Instagram, you'd see that on my story. And uh, so anyway, I ironed a bunch of shirts and then I left my shirt hanging uh, on my doorknob because it drives me crazy. I don't know if anybody else has this little quirk that I have, but when I have a freshly ironed shirt, I don't like to put it on and then get in the car and put the seatbelt over it and it gets all wrinkled. I think why I'm undoing the work I did. So what I do, whether I'm going to church or to a wedding or something like this, where I have my shirt ironed, I hang it in the car. And then when I get to the place, then I put the shirt on and the seatbelt doesn't wrinkle it. I don't know. Maybe that's quirky or weird, but I figure if I'm going to go to the trouble of ironing a shirt, I want it to be ironed. Anyway, it's still hanging. My shirt is still hanging on my door to leave the house so that I won't forget it. And so all I have now on is this t-shirt, but I'm not gonna do a whole OT with DA in just a t-shirt. That feels like that would be, I mean, just a white undershirt. It feels like it would be a little immodest. So I'm going to sweat here in my uh, down jacket under these hot lights. That's how much I love you. That's the kind of love that you get from DA is uh, my willingness to sweat. A few other quick things my willingness to sweat for you. Okay, first of all, I went and got a haircut today and big shout out to Carla. She often tunes in for OT with DA. And I'll tell you a story. This is how you know you have a good barber. Um, I sat down in the chair and I said, you know, just kind of give me the regular. 
and she's an amazing person. I, I absolutely love her. She's got she's got two sons that are actually partnering with her in her uh, barbershop. Very cool, Carla and Sons. And she's been doing she's been doing barbering. Is that the way you say it? Anyway, she's been a barber. She's a generational barber. Both of her parents were barbers, mom and dad. And now she's a barber, and her two sons she's training as barbers, which is very cool. So she's a teacher and a barber. Anyway, I'm going into too much detail here. So I sat down in the barber's chair today, this morning at 9.15, and she said, I think your hair looks great. <laughs> she's like, I like it. I like it like this. I think it looks good. And I said, really? It feels like it's kind of messy. I haven't, I haven't seen you for about a month. She said, no, I think it looks really good. I'll just, I'll just clean it up. So this is what she gave me, and I think it looks absolutely outstanding. I'm happy with it. So hopefully you're happy with it too. And if you're not, sorry. <laughs> okay, that's number one. Number two, I went rock climbing today. Got a quick session in just by myself. Violetta wasn't feeling well today, so she didn't come. So that was amazing. And now it's snowing outside, which I'm super pumped about. And then tomorrow, I go to the airport to pick up my good friend, Pastor Nathan Renner, and I just have to say, it's been so cool to see how all of the guests have lined up with topics that I would have wanted to talk to them about. Jen came at just the right time, and Dee came at just the right time, and uh, the Bakiokis came at just the right time. Johnny and Hannah came at just the right time, and now Nathan is showing up. Tomorrow we're going to go deep on the covenants, right? Because tomorrow's chapter is titled, The Law and the Covenants. And there's literally probably not a person on earth with the possible exception of maybe Ty Gibson and Jet. Or maybe there's top five. He's, he's one of the top five people that I would want to have with me on OT with DA to talk about the covenants. Or not even on OT with DA, just to talk about the covenants because Nathan has preached on the covenants. He's studied on the covenants. He's thought long and deep on the covenants. And hallelujah, as providence would have it, he's arriving tomorrow. I'm picking him up from the airport. And then so tomorrow at seven o'clock mountain time, we'll be back here for our study and it's going to be on the covenants. And then he'll be with us uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I'm pumped. Great day today. It's snowing right now. I already mentioned that. I love it when it snows. Um, I don't like it when it stays for months and months and months, but I love a fresh snow. I'm always reminded of the great promise of Isaiah 118, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And uh, so I drove over here to Larry and Cheryl's place and beautiful, snow covered, I can't wait um, to see how it looks when I get out of here because it was coming down pretty hard. All right, uh, that's everything. We've got a short chapter, but don't let this chapter fool you. What it lacks in length it more than makes up for in punch. I mean, did anybody else have that experience? Chapter 31, day 32, the sin of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. And we've got a lot to talk about. Now, I promised yesterday that this would be under an hour, and I'm going to hold myself to that. And so I started at seven on the button. And so when it gets to 7.59, no matter what I'm saying, I'm going to stop it. Just kidding. But I am going to try to stay under an hour. Let's start with prayer. Welcome, everybody. So glad you're here. This chapter is, I have this like love-hate relationship with this chapter because as a father, I'm like, wow, this is a heavy chapter. I mean, just imagine seeing your two sons consumed by the flame of Yahweh, right, while ministering in the sanctuary. Like, that's heavy. But then I also have this really strong love for this chapter because, number one, the writing is good, as per usual. 
The theological insights are fantastic as per usual. And there are a couple, two or three points in this chapter that are so punchy. And I think part of the reason they're so punchy is that the chapter is just short. So we're going to get into this. Chapter 31, we're starting on page 430 of the Types and Symbols, 359 of the original. And so let's do this. Father in heaven, bless us now as we open uh, chapter 31 of Patriarchs and Prophets. And as we continue our journey, OT with DA, uh, Father, help us to learn what we can learn. Help us to take on board those specific tailor-made lessons that your spirit is impressing upon us. Father, I know that in my study of this, I had a couple spirit moments where the spirit spoke to me and said, yeah, this is for you. Yeah, you need to hear this. In addition to all the other things that you're learning, this is for you. And Father, I just love it when your spirit comes through and does not disappoint. The, the spirit shows up in a way that we know, yeah, yeah, that's, that's God speaking and that's to me. And so, Father, I pray that we would have that experience tonight, all of us, and that we would collectively come away with a better understanding of you, of your word, and of this particular unfortunate episode in Israel's history, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, quick thing, I got to take my boots off. I got my snow boots on, and they are, my feet are sweating. My body is sweating. So yeah, okay, woo, I feel better already. Here we go. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to quickly read this. It's very short. And so I'm going to read it from the NIV because earlier today when I was reading, I read it in the uh, New King James, and I'm just going to be interested to see how the NIV renders this. So I'm going to read Leviticus 10, I guess like the first 11 verses. So Leviticus chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, little sticks that you kind of put uh, incense in the end of, and put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came down from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Now, just a word about that. This was one of the major points that we made yesterday about the sanctuary, that there is this tension in the sanctuary where God longs to dwell with his people, to be among his people, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, but there's this tension in that you can't just go up to Yahweh's tent in the same way that you would go up to my tent or your tent or somebody else's tent. And so, so the idea here, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. Remember our word holy, different, other, not like everybody else. The tent looked very plain and, and sort of similar to some of the other tents perhaps from the outside in terms of its basic color scheme, but it was a holy tent. It was a different tent. It was Yahweh's tent. And so he says, in the sight of all the people, I will be honored. And so Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elsaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle, Uziel, and said to them, come here, carry your cousins outside the camp away from the front of the sanctuary. Because you got these two charred, dead bodies. Well, that's a, that's not, you're not going to leave that in your front yard. And so Moses asks you know, the cousins of Nadab and Abihu to come and carry their charred remains out. That's a heavy scene. Verse 5, so they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses had ordered. Verse 6, then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, because Aaron has four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, do not let your hair become un unkempt and do not tear your clothes 
or you will die and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the Israelites, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Did I get that? Your relatives may mourn. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees that the Lord has given through Moses. Okay, heavy, heavy episode and a lot going on here. And it's a little difficult to digest the ease with which it just says that fire came down from Yahweh and consumed them. And then the cousins were called by Moses and said, yeah, take these bodies out of here. And then Moses turns his attention to Aaron and says, don't say anything. And then he turns to the sons of Aaron, Eliezer and Ithamar, the other two sons, and says, yeah, and by the way, let your family mourn. This is not a time for you to be mourning. And this is not a time for you to be leaving the sanctuary because you've got duties to do here. The oil, the priestly oil of anointing is still on you and you're not going anywhere. You're going to stay right here so as to not send a message to the camp that, that sin is to be allowed to interrupt the intercessory ministry of the priests. I mean, it's, I'm not going to pretend like it's an easy story, right? But there are some really great insights here. And I think as we sort of look at how she unpacks the chapter, we can begin to understand what was going on, okay? So uh, we'll just kind of start in on page one, 430, 359 of the original. She just sort of retells the story. The fire comes down from the Lord, consumes the offering upon the... Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Let me back up. So let, I actually should read this paragraph because uh, it's going to contrast a different kind of consuming fire. Remember Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. We've already seen that. So let's read that again. We'll just start in paragraph one. After the dedication of the tabernacle, the priests were consecrated to their sacred office. Remember what I said that what we saw when the yesterday when the cloud came and hovered over the tabernacle, this was basically God's announcement of his acceptance of the tabernacle, but it wasn't yet open for business. There was still a lot of education that had to take place. Moses had to teach what God had taught him on the mountain. And now there's like the ribbon cutting ceremony, so to speak, and Aaron and his sons have been anointed with the oil, and that's a really, really cool story that we can't go into deeply here, but I'll only say, well, I can't say anything about it. It's a really cool thing that happens when Aaron and his sons are anointed, thus inaugurating the heavenly sanctuary. All I'll say is that there's an antitype for this in Jesus' arrival in the heavenly sanctuary when it's inaugurated after his resurrection, and when the Holy Spirit is excuse me, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon him, that is the day of Pentecost that we see in Acts chapter 2. That's all I'm going to say. And then you can read Psalm 133 to kind of get a larger feel for what's going on there. But there's a very cool antitype or fulfillment of what's anticipated here. And so uh, it says that on the eighth day, they entered upon their ministration, right? So this is the ribbon cutting ceremony. The sanctuary is now open for business, like that bank or like that restaurant that we talked about yesterday, where the building is constructed but you still have to train the people on how to do what needs to be done in the building. So on the eighth day, they entered into their ministration, assisted by his sons. Aaron offered the sacrifices that God required. He lifted up his hands and blessed the people. 
All had been done as God had commanded, and he accepted the sacrifice and revealed his glory in a remarkable manner. Then, watch this, first time, fire came down from the Lord, consumed the offering upon the altar. The people looked upon this wonderful manifestation of divine power with awe and intense interest. Why intense interest? Because remember, they're learning. They don't know about Yahweh. The, the whole sanctuary, they're literally learning, oh, oh, so that's what we do, and the priests will be teaching. Moses will teach the priests. The priests will then teach the people. And so when something's happening, you know, this is like they're in school. So they're like, oh, why did that happen? And, and what's going on there? So when the fire comes down and consumes it, it's this display, this unambiguous display of God's favor on the sanctuary, on the priesthood, on the offering. And so the people are super interested and they saw in this consuming of the sacrifice, quote, a token of God's glory and favor. And they raised a universal shout of praise and adoration, they fell on their faces as if in the immediate presence of Jehovah. Now, just a quick reminder here. Remember that when we were together yesterday, and you might want to just write this down, page 417, I'll give you the original pagination, 417, the original 350. When the cloud came and hovered over the sanctuary, they said nothing. She actually makes this point. Let me just read it briefly. She says, a solemn awe rested upon everyone but the gladness of their hearts welled up in tears of joy. Ah, and they murmured low, earnest words of gratitude that God had condescended to abide with them. So this is a very cool contrast. Here, when the sacrifice is consumed, it says that they let up a universal shout of praise. And this is very cool. This alerts us to the fact that there's not one kind of worship or one attitude of worship or one way of worshiping, right? On the first occasion, they worshiped with quiet reverence and tears of joy. In this occasion, they shout praise to God, and there's this sort of universal enthusiasm. Okay, this is a great lesson. When we meet together to worship, there's not only one way to do that, right? There are times for solemn, sober worship. There are other times for enthusiastic, joyous worship. And I think sometimes the sort of worship wars that happen in local churches is because people, and forgive me for saying this, they're just being stupid. And, and I don't mean they're stupid, but they're behaving in stupid ways. Like, there are different ways to worship. There are times where solemnity and, and silence is the order of the day, right? The circumstance calls for sober reflection on a given situation or a given passage or a given song even. And then there are other times where the posture of worship should be one of joy and enthusiasm and, and, and happy adoration. And we see that just in these two chapters back to back. Very interesting. And so that's sort of real quick point number one. There's not one way to worship, right? We want to worship God in the way, and this is actually what we're going to see here in this chapter. God does have very specific ways that he is to be approached. We just read that in Leviticus 10. Yeah, no question there. But the idea that there's only one way for God's people to worship him in spirit and in truth is simply not true, right? Just as there are a cornucopia, a penelope of emotions, Worship is also an expression of our intellect and of our emotional state. I mean, go read the Psalms. Is there only one kind of psalm? No, there are psalms of psalms of joy. There are song, psalms of ascent. There are psalms of lamentation. There are psalms of uh, uh, there are imprecatory psalms. There's all different kinds of psalms, and this is alerting us to the fact there are educational psalms, right? So there's not one way to worship, and I thought that was a very important point. And so. So when the fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice, everybody's thrilled. Next paragraph, however, but soon afterward, a sudden terrible calamity fell on the house of, uh, fell upon the family of the high priest at the hour of worship as the prayers and praise of the people were ascending to God. 
Two of the sons of Aaron took, took each his censer and burned fragrant incense thereon to rise a sweet odor before the Lord. They're participating. They're joining in. Watch this. But they transgressed his command by using profane fire or the NIV that I read, unauthorized fire, right? Because the, the fire that they were supposed to light their incense censers from was the fire that had come down on the altar that, that had just come from the Lord. And as the sacrifice is still burning, they're supposed to go over and, and light their censer from that. But apparently they lit it from an unauthorized source, a non-holy source. So this is very important. They don't make a, the New King James says difference, and the NIV says they don't distinguish between the sacred and the profane, or here's how I said it, the common and the commanded. That's what I wrote in my notes, between the common and the commanded. The common is, yeah, well, you know, hey, what fire is fire. A day is a day. You know the Sabbath? No. We've already seen that God makes a distinction between things that are holy, things that are different, and things that are not holy. Remember what God said when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Take your shoes off because the place that you're standing is holy ground. It's different ground. The sanctuary is holy. The fire was holy. The Sabbath is holy. The ground was holy. Okay, so we might not be able to discern with the, you know, the eye of mere observation or of scientific inquiry what's holy and not holy. I mean, all 24-hour periods appear to be the same, but God says, no, the Sabbath is holy. The Sabbath is different, and we recognize that difference by keeping it holy. We can't make it holy. We keep it holy. And Nadab and Abihu couldn't make this fire holy. They could only keep holy. They could only retain what God had already established as holy. Remember, as different. And so what's, what's taking place here is not a mistake. This is important. It's not like, oh, man, I'm sorry, I, I made an error there. An er well, it was an error. It was an error in judgment that Ellen White throws in this fascinating little insight, which Scripture just hints at, because right after the, the death of Nadab and Abihu, it says that, that Moses says expressly to Aaron and to Eliezer and, um, what's his name? Ith I want to make sure I get it right. Eliezer and Ithamar, he says, don't drink wine when you come in to minister before the Lord, which intimates in Leviticus that that's what had happened. That the reason there was a lapse in judgment, the reason that there was a mistake made was because they were inebriated. They were buzzing. And she says it expressly, that that's part of what took place here. And what that's telling us is not that just that they made a mistake, but that they, they kind of thought themselves to be in such a privileged position that God would wink, wink, nod, nod at their mistakes and their decisions. They think, oh yeah, God and I, we're good old buddies now. You know, us and God, we're... we're and they actually see this hierarchy between them because they're the ones, and she makes this point, they got to go up the mountain and with the 70 elders and they got to see you know, Yahweh and dwell in his presence insofar as it was possible. And so they are actually believing that at some level they're kind of privileged. They're hobnobbing with God when in reality what was happening was they were, they were lucky, blessed, fortunate because Aaron, their dad, has already shown himself to be a person of very little discernment. And uh, as we're going to see here, not only little discernment, but, but little conviction, little strength. And so when they inebriate themselves and they go in, you know, buzzing before the Lord, this is not just an, a common mistake. This is an act of rebellion, and it's an act of not making a difference or a distinction between things that are common and things that are commanded. And that's the point. 
Write that down. Common versus commanded. And so that's what's going on here. Now, she actually says, uh, this is page 431. She says that what happens is that, that when people, people who have had a privilege, people who have had an opportunity to preach, to learn, to know, to follow, whatever our sort of spiritual pedigree is, and she gives four things here. She says, because men, I'm reading sort of to the top, toward the top of the page, 360 in the original, 431. She says, but their transgression was not therefore to be excused or lightly regarded. All this rendered their sin the more grievous. The fact that they'd had access, that they knew better, that they'd gone up the mountain with Aaron and Moses. And then she gives four things. And I actually would write these or, you know, make a note, one, two, three, four, in your patriarchs and prophets. That's what I did. Because the because men have one received great light, because they have, like the princes of Israel, two ascended the mountain, and been three privileged to have communion with God, and four to dwell in the light of his glory. So people that have a privileged spiritual position, one of leadership, one of opportunity. She's like, yeah, 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 because of that, let them not flatter themselves. And she uses that phrase twice, flatter themselves. Let them not flatter themselves that they can afterwards sin with impunity because they have been thus honored. God will not be strict to punish their iniquity. This is a fatal deception. The great light and privileges bestowed upon or bestowed require returns of virtue and holiness corresponding to the light given, corresponding to the light given, which is the point. Anything short of this, God cannot accept. Great blessings or privileges should never lull to security or carelessness, which is exactly what happens, right? So the, the idea here can be, and you, you see this, frankly, and I don't want to call out names, but you see this in some religious leaders. I mean, sometimes it's so brazen and disgusting and revolting, I just want to puke my guts out, right? People that occupy supposedly positions and, you know, they're very famous or popular ministers, and they just behave in ways that are just repulsive. They're absurd. They're disgusting. And then when they're questioned about this, and I've seen interviews to this effect, they'll say, well, I'm, I'm the servant of the Lord. It's like, dude, you're not the servant of the Lord. You're deceived. And unfortunately, you're leading thousands, or in some cases, hundreds of thousands or more of people astray because they think that this is appropriate behavior for a woman of God or a man of God. I'm sorry, no. Your privilege, I mean, the most privileged person to ever walk the earth was Jesus. I mean, he's God. And he humbled himself and made himself the servant, right? Doing the tasks that others didn't want to do. The washing of the feet is the great example, but just he assumed this sort of common role. He didn't carry himself like he was the bee's knees, right? Or somebody that was, that's an Australian saying, the bee's knees. I won't tell you some of their other sayings, not, not appropriate for OT with DA. But your job is not to carry yourself like you're something special. No, no, God is special. And if you have the privileged opportunity to ascend the mountain, to receive great light, to step into the presence of Yahweh, this should humble you profoundly and deeply and not cause you to think of yourself as being special. And now you can start cutting spiritual corners. And I'm going to say, without calling out names, never mind the televangelists and those that are famous, I myself have known people that they present in a certain way, and then when I spend time with them, this happened in, in particular with one reasonably well-known evangelist in my denomination, and uh, when I actually had the opportunity to speak at an event that he was speaking at, we were staying in the same house, and uh, when we got to chatting one Sabbath afternoon, I was, I was very unimpressed with how he carried himself. He was swearing, he was 
just using the way he carried himself. It was just like, dude, I was very uncomfortable. The way that he carried himself with me, he's, you know, he's kind of like, hey, you know, like, dude, I'm not your friend. I'm not your buddy. I just met you. And I find this all really unfortunate. And the way that you present yourself up front is not the way you're presenting yourself to me. And I never listened to another sermon from that person again. I couldn't. I was just like, nah, this is not, and I'm not just, this isn't, it wasn't like he said, oh, damn, or something like that. No, he was coarse. He was, it was gross, honestly. And and fortunately for me, it happened fairly early in my ministry. I would say in the first seven to 10 years, probably first seven to eight years. And I was completely turned off. And it was also a warning to me. And uh, without giving you know enough information here that you could identify this person, I'm only going to say that that person is no longer in the ministry. And that is not at all surprising to me. When people used to come and inquire, hey, what do you think of this guy? What do you think of that guy? I would say, well, I would say, you know, proceed with caution. I, I never, I didn't disclose what had happened to me on that day, but I was, it was almost like he had this idea that, oh yeah, we're pastors, we're pre-. And he thought, you could tell he could just, he had this sense that we're going to sit down in this room and we're going to hobnob, we're going to be, you know, talking coarse talk and swearing up a storm and just behaving like a couple of teenage boys. I was just like, sat down for like two hours. We chatted, and then when I saw where the conversation was going, and, you know, he was wise and he knew scripture, but it was a total turnoff for me, a warning, and again, not at all surprised that that brother is no longer in the ministry. Okay, so so don't think for a moment that just because you are given the opportunity to, to and don't get me wrong, I'm a sinner too. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not perfect, and I don't lay any claims to perfection, but I also can say in front of you right now, I'm not a raging hypocrite. Right, I'm somebody who is doing my best to follow Jesus and to live up the light to the light that I have. And when I fall and when I fail and when I make mistakes, I humble myself before those that I've hurt or upset or offended. And and I take very seriously and soberly the work that God has given me to do. I feel privileged every day to do what I do, to have the wife that I have and the children that I have. And I wouldn't risk it for anything. And so, yeah. Anyway, this isn't just about being an, a sinner. This is about being, frankly, a a hypocrite. And uh, so anyway, th- that, that can kind of infiltrate the mind. What, what can happen with religious people, and we see this in the medieval church, we see this in Nadab and Abihu, you can, sort of, you can start to believe your own hype, right? That's one of the biggest mistakes. And one of the key ideas that comes up in this chapter is not only don't flatter yourselves, but don't deceive yourselves. She mentions that in um, page 432, the paragraph begins, let no one deceive himself with the belief that a part of God's commandments are non-essential. So self-flattery and self-deception occur when you start to believe your own hype. You think that you're super special. You know, oh, I'm the bee's knees. I know what's really going on. And you leave that posture of humility and childlike learning before the Lord. And this can happen at local levels. It can happen at, you know, conference levels, regional levels. It can happen all the way up, right? And, And it reminds me of something I read years ago about George Whitfield, the great English preacher, um, who, when he first began to preach, people hated him. He would go to town to town, and certain people would throw tomatoes at him and throw food at him, and he would even be buffeted sometimes and kind of be chased out of town. But then he actually became wildly popular, both in England and then also in the United States when he traveled here for a time. He was actually, strangely enough, a friend of Benjamin Franklin's. And George Whitfield was maybe, if the reports are to be believed, the greatest preacher that that the English speaking world has ever seen or heard. And there's this great line in the biography that I read about Whitfield years ago, and it said this, he had survived adversity 
but could he survive popularity? Bam. Yeah, yeah, when everybody was against him, he, he could handle that because it kept him humble. It, it kept him on his knees before the Lord. But as soon as everybody's praising and everybody's celebrating, and wow, do we know something about celebrity culture in the world today? I mean, celebrity culture almost gives people a pass to behave like imbeciles. And then people, this is the most astonishing thing, and it's proof positive that it's living idolatry. The more ridiculous and absurd and debauched that celebrities behave, very often the more popular they become, right? And it's just a cruel form of idolatry, but that is not only confined to the irreligious world. We see some of this behavior even in the Christian world, and people, whether artists or musicians or worship leaders or pastors or writers, they begin to believe their own hype, and before you know it, it doesn't go well. They flatter themselves, they deceive themselves, and because they have this privileged position and opportunity, um, they think that they're in. Now, I, 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 don't, I don't want that. I've never, ever in my life had the desire to be the guy, the number one guy. You see how I am. I want to have people with me. I've always been a part of a team at, at every point in my ministry, and I've had opportunities. People have wanted to throw some money at me and say, hey, we can really make you. I don't want to be that guy. I don't trust myself. I want to be surrounded by a team of and I always have been, and I love that, and I encourage you to do the same. Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, he sent them out two by two. I'm always a little nervy about ministries that have a celebrity, a guy, the one, you know, like, that. Like, no, I'm not about that life. Even Moses had Jethro, and Moses had Aaron, and Moses had Miriam, and we all need people. Amen and amen. All right. Um, so then she goes on to say, unsurprisingly, that part of the reason for Nadab and Abihu's poor behavior was that their father had a yielding disposition, right? This is paragraph uh, Nadab and Abihu had not in their youth been trained to habits of self-control. The father's yielding disposition, now just remind yourself that in chapter 28, idolatry at Sinai, Ellen White uses that phrase yield or yielding like four or five times to refer to Aaron's disposition. So we already know that he's an accommodating, acquiescing kind of person because when the Israelites came and said, hey, we don't know what happened to Moses. We think he might have been consumed in the fire. We want gods of gold to lead us. He's like, well, uh, okay, he's indulgent. He's acquiescing. And that's what happened with his children. And so unsurprisingly, his children were raised in a home and in a context where they were indulged. They were not held to account. There were not consequences. I mean, what have we already talked about? Remember our sort of four stages of love requires freedom, freedom entails risk, risk or love requires freedom, freedom involves risk, risk entails responsibility, and responsibility enables moral growth. And you do see indulgent parents that do not provide adequate instruction or accountability, and then you end up with 20 and 30-year-old teenagers that have always been insulated and protected by their parents, and that never turns out well. It's not a good look. A 30-year-old teenager is not a good look. A 25-year-old teenager is not a good look. Well, that's what Nadab and Abihu, they really thought, oh yeah, they, they'd been sort of coddled and privileged in the home. And so when they got to go up on the mountain, they thought, oh, this is, this is a part of our ongoing privilege. We're, we're special. We're... No, no, no. It's not that you're special. It's that you just happen to be attached to Aaron, who's attached to Moses. That's what makes you special. This should have humbled them deeply. It should have caused great heart searching for them to realize, hey, I'm totally unqualified for this. Just because I'm tied to, to Aaron, I'm not... I'm not ready for this. And, and maybe in that state of mind, 
they could have been made ready. It reminds me years ago, I was preaching an evangelistic meeting with my good friend Daniel, and the, the and I might have told the story already, but the senior pastor that was overseeing our evangelistic meeting said to the two of us, are you guys ready? Do you feel like you're ready to go? You got this? And we both were like, no, we're terrified, and we think we're going to make a giant mess of it, and we feel like somebody else should be doing this. And then the pastor very wisely said, then you're the right men for the job. Our sense of disqualification, he knew this wise old minister, his name was Eugene, beautiful man, Eugene Miller. He knew that that sense of our unworthiness and of our lack of ability would keep us on our knees and humble before the Lord. He even said to us, he said, if you were to tell me, no, no, I, no we got this, not a piece of cake, he said, then I'd be nervous. That's how Nadab and Abihu felt because they'd been trained apparently and conditioned in their home, no accountability, little consequences, just privileged and sort of coddled along. Well, then I don't know what age they are here, but whatever age they are, they were effectively teenagers, you know, doing the old like Beavis and Butthead routine, like, you know, oh yeah, let's take some of this fire, half drunk, ministering before Yahweh. God's like, no, sorry. And this reminded me of page 388. Remember that all-time page, 388, where God, God judges thousands to save millions. Boom. So you know what God did here? He judged two to save thousands. And she says that Aaron knew immediately that everything that had happened there at some level was his own responsibility. She says, I'm reading now again, they had not been taught to respect the authority of their father. Well, who hadn't taught them that? Whose responsibility is that? Who should have taught them to respect the authority of their father and of their mother? Well, that's, that's, that's Aaron's responsibility. By the way, we're going to see this again later in the New Testament with Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. There are, I don't want to go into that. They had, been, they had not been taught to respect the authority of their father. They did not realize the necessity of exact obedience to the requirements of God. Aaron's mistaken indulgence of his sons prepared them to become the subjects of divine judgment. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds like the 3,000. Aaron's acquiescence and Aaron's accommodation of sin, his willingness to cut corners with people, which is a false sympathy. We're going to get to that in just a second. It's a false sympathy to sympathize with people in their rebellion and in their sin. We're going to get to that in just a second. Well, not only did this jeopardize the lives of his own sons, we've already talked about how 3,000 people, those that were incorrigibly rebellious in the golden, following the Golden Calf incident, that they lost their lives, and that was in some sense, of course, everybody was responsible for their own actions and their own choices, but Aaron could have prevented that. So this is hardly surprising, right? It's hardly surprising, and I think Ellen White's treatment of Aaron here, though he was a holy man and though he was the high priest, is fair. Now, I just got to say a word, jump back up to the middle of the page where God cannot, this is what she says, God cannot accept anything short of this, anything short of doing your best in a situation where you've been entrusted with great responsibilities, right? Which sounds very much like, write this down, Luke 12, 48, Luke 12, 48, where Jesus tells, excuse me, a parable. And then he says, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required, right? We, we understand this intuitively. If people are entrusted with great responsibilities, if people are given great privileges, then they can be trusted with great responsibilities. What we don't want to see is people that are given great privileges and opportunities who then 
don't want to have similarly large responsibilities or, or accountability or consequences. So she says, God cannot accept anything short. Well, I want you to notice what she doesn't say. She doesn't say God will not accept. Now, follow me on this, because if you don't read this carefully, you could be like, well, this is kind of capricious. This is kind of arbitrary, which is a word we've looked at a lot here. Why is God being so strict here? Why is God being so full on? I mean, why didn't God just, she does not say God will not accept this, right? This, This behavior of not living up to the level of the privileges that have been afforded by Yahweh. She says he cannot. He cannot accept it. Why might that be? Well, friends, it's because God cannot lie. God cannot lie. What do you mean, David? Well, because God cannot pretend that something is what it isn't or that it isn't what it is. Yet you and I do that, right? With, with our children or in situations, we'll accommodate, we'll be elastic, and, and there's, there's places for that. We'll get to that in a second. But in this case, God can't pretend that what's happened with Nadab and Abihu is anything other than what it is. It's not that he will not accept it as if he has a choice in the matter. It's that he cannot. His own internal covenantal integrity does not allow him to pretend that something is holy and authentic and integrate if it's not. That would be to tell a lie. And scripture is abundantly clear, and all these are in my notes. If you're following on Instagram, you can see that. There's numerous passages that say expressly, God cannot lie. And she says it actually on the next page. Turn the page, if you would. Um, Right at the top. God designed to teach the people, this is page 432, 361, God designed to teach the people that they must approach him with reverence and awe, and in his own appointed manner, he cannot accept partial obedience. Again, note this. Make Make a note of it in your journal or in the margin of the book. It's not that he will not accept partial obedience. He cannot, because partial obedience is disobedience. I used to tell my sons this all the time. I would say, delayed obedience is disobedience. Right? When my children are young and I would ask them to do something and they wouldn't do it, they say, oh, dad, I'll do that later. No, 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 sorry, that didn't work that way. Delayed obedience is not delayed obedience, it's disobedience. And partial obedience is not partial obedience, it's disobedience. So when she says God cannot accept a partial obedience, what she's saying is God can't tell a lie. He can't say that something is what it isn't and isn't what it is. What Nadab and Abihu did was what they did And for God to go wink, wink, nod, nod, just trust me on this. You don't want that kind of a God. Trust me when it comes to matters of truth and justice and integrity and covenantal faithfulness, you and I do not want a God that cuts corners, a God that's not straight down the line about what's actually happening. This is why C.S. Lewis says, and I love this, this is why C.S. Lewis says that what a lot of people want is not a heavenly father, they want a heavenly grandfather. Because a grandfather will very often allow his grandchildren to get away with things, right? It's always the, it's proverbial that the grandchildren spoil, excuse me, the grandparents spoil the grandchildren. They indulge the grandchildren, right? And so Lewis makes this great point. He says, what a lot of us want is not a heavenly father. We want a heavenly grandfather. We want someone who will just look out and Lewis says, you know, oh, well, you know what, you know, it's fine as long as the kids are all having a good time. Yeah, that might work for a granddad. That doesn't work for a dad, right? There are things that that Violetta's dad would allow my children to do and that my dad would allow my children to do that I will not allow them 
No, 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 no. I, I get it. You love your grandkids and they're cute and they're squishy and they're fun and you don't get to see them as much as you want. But I have to live with this little monster. And so he or she is going to learn that partial obedience is disobedience and delayed obedience is disobedience. And you and I don't want it any other way. We might think that we would love to have a God who cuts corners. No, you don't. You want a God that's straight down the line, that tells the truth in every circumstance, the truth about us, the truth about the world, the truth about sin, the truth about salvation, the truth about love, the truth about joy, the truth about alcohol, because that comes up in this chapter. And so when she says that God cannot accept a partial obedience, that's just another way of saying that God can't tell a lie. He's not going to pretend that something is what it isn't or isn't what it is. Bam. And uh, then here again in this same paragraph, she contrasts again between the commanded and the common. The common and the commanded, the common and the commanded. That comes up again and again. Then quotes Isaiah 5, 20 to 24. Woe to those, doom upon those who call evil good and good evil, right? Who cut corners, who say that something is what it isn't and isn't what it is. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, spiritual flattery, self-flattery, self-deception who think that their privileges and their opportunities actually afford them the opportunity to be a hypocrite and to cut corners. By the way, there is something inbuilt to religious hierarchy that just does this to people. It happened in the medieval church. It happened here. It happens in uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the days of Jesus. People literally begin to believe, especially religious people, religious leaders, they begin to believe their own hype and they think there's something special which is why we should be so nervous about creating a celebrity culture with our religious leaders because we could literally create a situation where we destroy them. This is, again, why I've never personally been inclined to being the guy. You know, David Asherick Ministries International. It doesn't appeal to me. It's not my thing. No, I want a Jennifer next to me and a Sylvia next to me and a Ty next to me. My whole life, my whole ministry, I've known intuitively that that I would be better off being surrounded by bright and brilliant minds, not just sycophants who will tell me whatever it is I want to hear. I want people who know me well enough, who love me well enough, and whose intellect I respect, and whose connection with Jesus I respect, to call me out and say, hey, 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 you're going down the wrong path there, or that's not the way. I don't want to be the guy. I don't want to be the celebrity, the religious celebrity, and you shouldn't want to either. It's dangerous. We all need that family, that community of people around us, and not just subordinates. We need people who are our peers. We need people who are, who are fully willing and who we have authorized to call us on our BS. And yeah, I said it. To call us on our BS. We want those people in our lives. We want the iron sharpening iron. The, the, the text of Scripture doesn't say wood sharpens iron. No, wood doesn't sharpen iron. Wood gets beat up by iron. And if we begin to believe our own hype, we'll surround us by pe- we'll surround ourselves with people that will just continue to feed into our own hype machine. And before you know it, we are totally self-deluded. We are beginning to behave like David did with Bathsheba in a hypocritical manner because we believed our own hype. We think we're something special. Well, you are special, but not in the sense that you think. Okay, so they're not making this distinction. Who she says it here? I'll just read it again. What are those who are wise in their own eyes, who have believed their own hype? and prudent in their own sight, who justify the wicked for a bribe, who take away justice from the righteous man. See, that's what you don't want. As soon as you have a God that cuts corners in certain situations, then where? what's the limiting principle here? If God is willing to cut corners, what's the limiting principle? If he'll cut here, then will he cut here? Will he, will he cut here? Will he cut here? I mean, we don't allow this in law. 
Even in our own flawed law systems, we don't say, well, you know, it was a little rape. It was, it was just a little rape. You know, it wasn't a big rape. It was a little rape. No, absolutely not. The law says what the law says, and a rape is a rape, right? An assault is an assault. A murder is a murder. Not a little, uh, you know what, you know what, between you and I, unfortunately, that is the world that we live in. If you have the money and the resources to get lawyers that are savvy enough, you can very often get away with murder. It's a thing that can happen. Who take away justice from the righteous man, they have rejected the law of Yahweh of hosts, and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You do not want a God who cuts corners. We want a God who tells the truth about himself, about us, about the world, about our state, about our need of a savior. What we need is a heavenly father, not a heavenly grandfather. Somebody say amen. God has children, not grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Nobody's getting in on the coattails of their genealogy. Okay, then in the next paragraph, she says, let no one deceive themselves. Um, and then I, I want to go to the last thing I'm going to say here, second to the last thing I'm going to say here, and then we'll go to the rubric, is this section on 433, unbelievable, all time, absolutely all time, right in the middle of 433, 361. I'm going to read this and then a little bit of commentary. Uh, the divine rebuke. Okay, this should be this whole paragraph, this whole section of this paragraph. In fact, I, I, I actually texted this to one, two, three, four of my friends, five of my friends today, because there are situations that I'm involved in, in life and in ministry, that this paragraph applies so profoundly to. I sent it to several of my closest friends today, and I said, this situation that you're in, read this. This circumstance that you and I have been talking about, read this. It just felt totally providential. When I read this today, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Here we go. The divine rebuke is upon that false sympathy. Highlight it, because she's going to say it twice. The divine rebuke is upon that false sympathy, right? For the sinner which endeavors to excuse his sin. Ah, that's false sympathy. False sympathy is corner cutting. Say, well, yeah, 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 you know, I know. We're... And what do people always say? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Well, it's true nobody's perfect. Newsflash, nobody's perfect. Okay, thanks for that, journalist man, journalist woman. We all knew that. But, but when, when people say, well, nobody's perfect or I'm not perfect, very often what they're doing is they're trying to excuse bad behavior or abusive behavior or unacceptable behavior. And that's what she's saying here. False sympathy is where you come alongside somebody and you actually comfort them in their sins. There's a big difference between comforting someone in the forgiveness that is theirs in Christ yeah, 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 amen. Preach. Jesus sent the comforter. But the comforter was sent not only to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. And when the Spirit afflicts the comfortable and is convicting somebody of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, woe to that person that comes alongside the convicted sinner and says, no, no, you know what? It's fine. Nobody's perfect. That's not sympathy. And that's not good for people. It's not good for you. It's not good for them. She calls it false sympathy. Let me read it again. The divine rebuke is upon that false sympathy for the sinner which endeavors to excuse his sin or her sin. It is the effect of sin to deaden the moral perceptions. True. So that the wrongdoer does not realize the enormity of the transgression. True. Nate Abbott of Ihu, I've had this experience myself where you find yourself, you make a mistake, and then it's easier to make that mistake again. 
It's easier to, and then before you know it, you it starts to feel not that sinful. Well, the reason it starts to feel not that sinful is you've been deceived by sin and by your own heart, and your habitual execution of the thing has softened you to the seriousness of it. This is why sin is not something to be played with. And so she says, so that the wrongdoer does not realize the enormity of transgression, and without the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, he or she remains in partial blindness to his sin. Ah! It is the duty of Christ's servants to show these erring ones their peril. Now, obviously, to state the obvious here, to say what shouldn't have to be said, but does need to be said, that when we go, when we draw alongside people that are playing with sin or that are struggling or that are in need of correction or of encouragement, we do so with equal parts, compassion and courage. Okay, if you have an imbalance of compassion and courage, you're going you're gonna to miss the mark. If you're only courageous, then you probably come off like a jerk, a judgmental jerk who's trying to look down your long nose at somebody else in their mistakes and in their errors, and they're going to turn right back around when they sense that there's not genuine sympathy or compassion there, and they're going to say, well, what about you? What about you, Mr. Do-Good? What about you, Mrs. Knows Everything? No, no, no. Yes, courage, and it does take courage to come alongside your family members and your friends and to say, you know what? I think the Spirit of God is asking me to say this to you, but I, I do it with full awareness of my own sin and my own weakness and my own needs. And maybe you see things in me that you need to point out. You come with that attitude, it's going to be fine. But if you show up holier than thou, right, all puffed up with a sense of your own righteousness, well, that's not going to work. No, 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 no. You have to have the courage basket full. Okay, that's true. And God give us more courageous Christians. But you also have to have the compassion. You have to have the compassion basket full as well. Right? One of the things that I love the New Testament says about Jesus is that he looked at the crowds and had compassion on them. Jesus was equal parts courage and compassion. So when we're presented with those opportunities to draw alongside somebody and say, you know, sister, you know, brother, can I ask you about something? Because maybe I've got this wrong, but I'm observing something and it's making me a little uneasy and maybe I've misread the situation. Notice you're coming with humility, with self-doubt. You're not coming like you know everything and you've got it all figured out. You're, you're coming in the spirit of inquiry. And, and also of courage and of compassion. The divine rebuke is upon all, uh, where am I at here? It is the duty of Christ's servants to show these erring ones their own peril in the way that I've described here and in the way that Jesus models for us, obviously, and the New Testament describes uh, in numerous passages. Those who destroy the effect of the warning by blinding, second time she's used that phrase, blind or blindness, the eyes of the sinner to the real character and results of sin flatter themselves. Ah, there it is, second time. That they thus give evidence of their charity. Oh, but I'm so... Yeah, no. Remember what the people said about Aaron? He was so understanding. He was so gentle and patient. Yeah, here's the problem. His gentleness and patience actually led Israel into idolatry and led 3,000 people to, lead, to lose their lives unnecessarily and prematurely. I shouldn't say unnecessarily because they deserved what happened to them, but... The whole event need not have happened, and those people may have had an opportunity to repent. Okay, so, so what does Scripture say? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. I, I have a friend, I, I won't tell you her name, but I have a friend who's hyper-conscious, hyper-conscious about how others perceive her. She's always, she doesn't want to be perceived as the bad guy, and oh, but what if you, and, and I've had to say to this dear sister on several occasions, because she's a very courageous person, but she's hypersensitive to this. I've had to say to her, listen, sister, 
If, if certain people are going to write you off for your strong convictions about something, you're going to take a stand for the truth in a godly way, in a Christian way, and people write you off. People are dismissive of you. They're unkind to you. They're trolling you. You know what I say to her? I say, wear their contempt like a badge of honor. The courageous, compassionate Christians should not be everybody, not everybody should think you're awesome and amazing. We should be disruptive, not purposefully disruptive, but there is a, a disruption that takes place when we're infilled with the Spirit. This is why when Jesus is going through the beatitudinal sequence, and he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, the very next thing he says is, blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Right? There's this great story about Charles Spurgeon, who sent off a couple of his young understudies, his disciples, to go and preach in a certain town. And they went and preached in this certain town in, in rural England, and they came back a little earlier than he expected them. And he said, hey, you're back so soon. What, 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 what's gone on? He said, well, you know, it, it, it didn't go like we thought it would go. And he said, oh, what, what, what happened? Well, did you preach the gospel? And they said, yeah, yeah, we, we preached the gospel. And then Spurgeon allegedly said or reportedly said, well, was there a revival? And they said, no, no, there, there wasn't a revival. And he said, oh, well, was there a riot? Was there a riot in the town? That's why you're back early, because you were run out of town. And they said, no, there, there wasn't a riot either. And he said, well, so there was no revival and no riot. And they said, yeah, yeah, not at all. And he said, well, then you didn't preach the gospel. Then you didn't preach the gospel. Go back to that town and preach the gospel. Because friends, the gospel preached, proclaimed, or lived out will be disruptive. And so if there's going to be people that dislike you or are dismissive of you or hate you because you're standing, not obnoxiously, but you're standing on a plane, thus saith the Lord, then you should wear their contempt like a badge of honor. Now, again, I'm not saying be purposefully obnoxious or hostile or inflammatory. No, of course not. No, no, we should, in the words of the Apostle Paul, we should seek to, to live quiet and peaceable lives. But in living our quiet and peaceable lives, if we're standing for the truth, this is going to rub the kingdom of darkness the wrong way, and it's going to rub some people that aren't aligned with God and his word. And so guess what? Who cares? Right? If, if someone's going to hate you because you are and I just, I don't want to, I don't want you to hear that I'm giving you license to be a jerk. You have no license to be a jerk. That's not what I'm talking about here. And there are plenty of Christian jerks in the world. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you are in your own humble way, just trying to do right and to live right, and people are dismissive of you or unkind to you. Now listen, if they're good people, people of goodwill, and they come to you and they draw alongside you, like we're describing here, then you should hear their concerns. We all can be learning from those around us. But I'm talking about people that are trolling, people that are being dismissive or unkind. You should wear their contempt for you like a badge of honor. We should not, people hated Jesus. Well, did Jesus go around mealy mouth, milk toast, trying to, you know, win himself into the affections of everybody? He said, no, you go tell that fox, I'm going to work today, I'm going to work tomorrow, and I'm going to be perfected on the third day. I'm going to do what I'm doing. And this thing that I'm doing is not going to be short-circuited by what Herod or the religious leaders or anybody else that set themselves over and against me. Friends, the gospel does have enemies. Do you hear me? The gospel has enemies. 
And if you're going to live the gospel and proclaim the gospel and believe the gospel and by the grace of God embody the gospel, don't be surprised when you have enemies. So she says they flatter themselves. They thus give evidence of their charity. Right? That's what, oh, Aaron, he's such a great guy. But they are working directly to oppose and hinder the work of God's Holy Spirit. They are lulling the sinner to rest on the brink of destruction. They are making themselves partakers in his guilt and incurring a fearful responsibility for his impenitence. Many, many have gone down to ruin as the result of this false and deceptive sympathy. Mark it and mark it well. Mark it and mark it well. False and deceptive sympathy. And uh, unfortunately, we're at an hour, and I've just got a, a short little bit to go here. So we didn't get under an hour, but I tried. I really tried. But I guess I just got, I got fired up. I got filled with the Spirit here. And then she spends the last page talking about alcohol. And um, I'm just going to say this very simply. As somebody who's been straight edge, I don't know if you know what straight edge is, but I've been a straight edge kid since I was 17 years old. And straight edge is a certain vein or a certain genre of punk rock that I'm so thankful I got involved in when I was very young, young punk rock kid, playing in bands, singing in bands, and I got attracted to a group of people that were straight-edge punk rockers. And uh, I won't go into all the details here, you can Google it if you're interested, but straight-edge was basically people that decided overtly, um, enthusiastically, in a, in a strong way that they were not going to drink alcohol, they were not going to do drugs. And so I was a straight edge and then later became a vegan. I was a straight edge vegan punk rocker. And I'm still now today, 49 years old, I'm still straight edge. There's no alcohol going in my body. There's no drugs going in my body, not drugs for the purpose of inebriation, right? If I feel a little unwell, I'll take a pain medication once or twice a year, but talking about recreational drug use or alcohol. No, and I'll say this, and I make no apologies for this, and I've said this in my preaching, and I've had people get upset about it. I don't care. You can get upset all you want. There is no good reason to drink alcohol. No good reason. Nobody can give me one good reason to drink alcohol. Sorry. But I can give you dozens of good reasons not to drink it. Dozens and dozens and dozens, and I'll give just one. Just one. Let's do this little thought experiment, shall we? I want you just to imagine with me here a world in which alcohol does not exist. Let's just do a little thought experiment here. Let's imagine a world in which there is no alcohol, right? There's no beer, there's no wine, there's no liquor, there's no bourbon, there's no gin. There is no alcohol. There isn't that tiny little effervescent molecule that crosses the blood-brain barrier, gets into our synapses, and causes us to behave in irrational and hostile and violent in senseless ways. Okay, let's just pretend. Let's just imagine right now. There is no alcohol. What does the world look like? Let's ask ourselves this question. Is that a better world or a worse world? Well, friends, this requires no reflection at all. It's an unambiguously much better world. Much, much, much better world. For example, there are no drunk drivers and no drunk driving deaths. Two of my closest friends in the world, when they were in the prime of their youth, in their early 20s, were killed by a drunk driver. Two of my closest friends were killed by a drunk driver. Okay, well, guess what? If there's no alcohol, there's no drunk drivers. You know what else there's? There's no, a high percentage of unwanted pregnancies and thus abortions are the direct result of alcohol. Well, guess what? The abortions and unwanted pregnancies in the world just took a precipitous drop. Okay, how about crime? 
My older brother is a police officer. And I remember years ago, I asked him, I said, um, I said, I said, Wayne, what percentage of the calls that you go on are drug or alcohol related? And I don't know if he was being a little, you know, uh, facetious, but he just instantly said 90%. Now, I don't know if it's actually 90%, but the point was, is he was saying the majority of them. Okay, so, so crime, down. Unwanted pregnancies, down. Gone, gone, not down, gone. Drunk drivers, gone. Drunk driving deaths, gone. Right? How about this one? I used to take care of children that had, I used to take care of, they were not all children, some of them were adults that had Down syndrome, autism, and I took care of several young people. Uh, this was in a vocational, uh, not vocational, uh, uh, residential setting when I worked for three years prior to my becoming a Christian. This actually played a pivotal role in my becoming a follower of Jesus. But I took care of several young people that were fetal alcohol syndrome. This was maybe the saddest of all the situations that I was involved in that I had to take care of these children because this was not a genetic, you know, anomaly. This wasn't, you know, a defect that was, you know, not preventable. No, no. Fetal alcohol syndrome is 100% preventable. So anyway, the point is the number one reason to not drink alcohol, and I can give you, I could give you dozens, but number one is close your eyes and just imagine a world without alcohol and ask yourself if that's a better world or a worse world. I mean, the only people that would be like, oh man, too bad, no alcohol. The people that would really not like it are the beer companies, the alcohol companies, the wine companies, and those that are escaping from the difficulties, vicissitudes of life by alcohol as an escape mechanism. So here's my point. People that are self-medicating. There is no good reason to drink alcohol, and she spends the last sort of page there talking about that. And uh, so I just want to say, I've been straight edge since I was a teenager, and I will be straight edge till the day I die. I, I used to take my sons, take my two boys, and um, when we would go into uh, a grocery store or a Trader Joe's that would have like these big aisles of alcohol. It's a true story. I've done this many times, dozens of times. And I walk with my boys down this aisle purposely. And I say, boys, do you see all of this? Do you see all of this? This is when they were young. I say, yeah, yeah. Do you see all this? You know, we never go in this aisle. We you notice we never get anything out of this aisle. And they say, yeah, well, what, what, why, Dad? I say, all of this is poison. Everything in this aisle is poison, and it ruins people's lives. It ruins people's marriages. What this is all, and they'd say, yeah. when they were young, they'd say, this is all poison. I say, it's all poison. And they say, well, why do people drink it? And I say, well, because it's so poisonous that it actually makes you think it's not poisonous. It creates what's called an addiction. From a young age, I educated my children. And I would say to them, boys, you know, the, this is when they got a little older. I would say, you know, the number one way, the number one way, the surefire way to never take a second drink of alcohol. And they'd say, what, what how, how? I'd say, never take a first drink. Because it's a mathematical impossibility to have a second drink of alcohol if you didn't take the first drink. And I said, boys, if we raise you right, your mom and I, you will never spend one penny of your money in this aisle. And sometimes we'd go to the liquor store and we'd just lean up against the glass. And I'd see boys, I'd say, boys, you see all that? Everything in this whole store is poison. All of it. Poison. And praise the Lord Jesus, man. My boys, they, they got that lesson. And you know, they're young. They're only 19 and 20 at this point. But by the grace of God, they'll go their whole lives and never take a drink of alcohol. Okay, here we go. Let's do the rubric. We're, we're over an hour. Apologies, but we'll be well under yesterday's time. Okay, here we go. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. 
Number one, the point to send a solemn warning to the reader, us, on several levels. Holiness, pride, self-deception, flattery, indulgent parenting, false sympathy, and alcohol. That's a long list of things to be warned about. Here's the list again. Holiness, in other words, not that they're all things to avoid, but things to just be mindful of, to, to occupy a state of willingness to be rebuked by Yahweh. Holiness, pride, self-deception, flattery, indulgent parenting, false sympathy, and alcohol. This is a warning chapter. Number two, the person. What do we learn about God from this chapter? Well, how about this one? God cannot lie. He cannot pretend that something is what it isn't and isn't what it is. God does have commands, and there's a big difference between what's common and what God commands. What's common might be popular. In fact, that's actually the definition, right? Common is from community. There might be a lot of people that are doing it. Who cares if a lot of people are doing it? What does God say? What's God's word say? Stand there. Stand there. Stand on that spot right there on God's word, and you'll be all right. Don't do it as a jerk. Don't do it obnoxiously. Don't do it in a way that's not true to the spirit of the text and true to the, the incredible beauty and ministry of Jesus. Don't be obnoxious, but you stand on the word and let the consequences be what they are. Remember what Moses there, when, when, the, when, the, when the approaching armies of Pharaoh were coming and everybody was freaking out because the sea was before them and the mountains on the side, and she says, Moses felt no fear. That's where you want to be. You want to be where you're just standing by the grace of God on the word. Now, quick word about that. Make sure you surrounded yourself with a community of people that can hold you to account, because sometimes we stand in ways on the word that are, that are actually not sustained by the word, and we learn and we grow. When I think back to some of the convictions that I had in my early Christian experience, the first several years, I'm glad that I don't have those convictions anymore, because I thought that I was holding to firm biblical convictions, but what I later learned is I was just actually holding to, to cultural norms within a given group or denomination, and that those were th those were matters of preference, not of principle. And so you want to stand firm on a thus saith the Lord, but you also want to surround yourself with a community of people that are all seeking to grow closer to God and closer to Jesus. And these are people that you can hold to account and they can hold you to account, not with the false sympathy that she describes there, uh, but with, with true biblically informed sympathy. And that's what you want. Find yourself a tribe. Find yourself a tribe, and I, I can't say this strongly enough. Ever since I became a follower of Jesus, I've just had my tribe, my people. Surround yourself with people that are that are that are intelligent, that are that are taking their connection with Jesus seriously, that are fun, that know how to worship. I mean, you know, find your tribe, and if there's somebody in your tribe that's going, you know, outside of what they themselves, their own convictions draw alongside them and create an accountability structure within your tribe, within your community, that if you start to do that, they'll come alongside you. That's what you want. You want friends that will call you on your BS. And you want friends that when you call them on their BS, they won't become all precious and oh, oh, simpering, wilting flowers. No, you want, you want friends that are formidable. Iron sharpening iron, growing together. As I've mentioned before, truth is an emergent property of a community of people. The word ecclesia literally means the called out ones. We're called out, but we're called out together. We're not called out as individuals or as lone rangers. We're called out in a community and we need each other. 
We need each other. We need each other. All right, the prayer. How do we pray this chapter? Father, keep me from deceiving myself. I pray this prayer a lot. Father, keep me from deceiving myself. Also, save my children and protect me from ever being an indulgent parent. A loving parent? Yes. A fun parent? Yes. A close parent? Yes. A supportive parent? Yes. A generous parent? Yes. An enthusiastic parent? Yes. But not an indulgent parent. No, I don't. I want to be like God in that regard. I, I don't want to say that something is what it isn't and isn't what it is. I don't want to be a granddad to my children. I want to be a dad. And Violetta doesn't want to be a grandmother to our sons. She wants to be a mother. Sometimes we want a grandmother or a grandfather. But what we need is not what we want. What we need is a father figure, a heavenly father. We need a God who doesn't cut corners. A God who's committed to truth, committed to love, who has equal parts, courage, and compassion. Okay, and then finally, oh no, excuse me, two more. Uh, practice. How do we practice this chapter? Number one, um, don't do two things. This, I'm gonna, this is my practical application. Don't, number one, extend false sympathy, which is actually cruelty masquerading as kindness. False sympathy is cruelty masquerading as kindness. It looks like kindness when you draw along somebody and comfort them in their sins. Don't comfort them in their sins. Comfort them in the forgiveness that is theirs in Jesus for their sins. That's number one. And number two, don't drink alcohol. Do not put drugs, recreational drugs or substances into your body that will incapacitate your brain. Your brain is your connection to reality. Why would you ever want to incapacitate yourself to understand? I mean, I get it. It's escapism, self-medication, and I do realize that alcoholism at some level is a disease, and people need help, and I'm all about that help. But here's the number one way to never become an alcoholic. Don't take the first drink. If you don't take the first drink, you'll never take the second drink. And then finally, what's the promise? God can call profoundly broken and imperfect and sinful people to ministry, and to high positions of trust. And friends, that's me. That's me. The ministry that God has given to me, the opportunities that God has given to me, I know, and my wife knows, and my community knows, I'm not perfect. I'm profoundly broken and a sinner in need of a Savior. Yes and yes. But if Aaron, if the life of Aaron teaches us anything, and it teaches us quite a few things, it teaches us that God can use profoundly broken people. Profoundly broken people. And that's my promise. Say, God, if, if you can use Aaron, I hope, I think you can use me. Okay, what was your word? What was your word? I'm dying to know. We were nowhere near an hour here. Who was I kidding? I'll stop saying that. What was your word? Can't wait to hear it. Okay, obligation or acceptable, says Brady. Good word, sacred, good word, holy, good word, says Marilyn. Common, good word. I'll let you know if I see my word. Hannah says temple. Oh, thank you, Michelle. There's a reason that alcohol is called spirits. Great point. Blind, requirements, temperance, integrity, respect, holy, holy, neglect. Good word there because it says twice that he neglected, Aaron neglected the raising of his children. Temple, obey, casual, interesting. Reiner, interesting. Weak, essential, consecrated. I haven't seen my word yet, which I'm a little surprised about. Um, respect, 
Cassandra says, warning, very good. This whole chapter, Cassandra, was a warning. Totally agree. Rebuke, fire, good word. Fire's a good word. Holy, says Mike. Temperance, a lot of temperance. Woe, yeah, it's kind of got that Isaiah 1 to 5 feel. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Uncommon, self-control, yield, fire, because. Okay, there we go. Selden Greer. That's very close. And that is my word, actually. Difference. Difference. And you could have used, on the last page, she uses all of these D words. Discern, difference, distinguish, discriminate. And she doesn't mean discriminate like in the sense of like class discrimination or racial discrimination or gender-based discrimination. No, no. She means like discriminate between right and wrong, between the sacred and the profane, between the common and the commanded. Listen to those words again. Discern, difference, distinguish, discriminate. My word was difference for two reasons. Number one, we need to make a difference between the common and the commanded, right? Between the holy and the unholy, the sacred and the profane. But also number two, when we draw alongside people, when we draw alongside people, this is cool. You know I love these double meanings. We can make a difference in their lives if we don't come to them with false, false sympathy. So I like the word difference here. I want to be surrounded by a community of people that can make a difference in my life. Iron sharpens iron. I want a tribe. I want people who are following Jesus, who are serious about loving Jesus and loving the world. So I want people in my life who are going to make a difference in my life. I don't just want people that are sycophants, just yes men and women telling me whatever it is that I want to hear. No, for me, the word was difference. To make a difference, to make a difference and to see a difference. That's hot. That's hot. Okay, I love you all so much. Um, we will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow with Nathan Renner, right? My closest, one of my very closest friends in the world. Um, I love that guy. I've known him since he was a teenager. And uh, he's straight edge too, by the way. Maybe I'll ask him about it tomorrow. I think he had a little lapse in his straight edge uh, in his uh, early 20s or late teens. Maybe I'll ask him about that. But anyway, he's straight edge now and has been straight edge for the vast, vast majority of his life. And he's somebody in my life that makes a difference. He holds me to account. In fact, he had a situation recently. He reached out to me and he said, hey, what do you think of this situation? And I said, well, is he pastors a church and, and he's a person of you know, significant responsibility and intelligence. And he said, um, hey, you know, I got this situation. Would just love to get some counsel. That's what you're looking for. People that you can reach out to. And uh, man, I'm just so thankful. I have a tribe of these people. Like, I hope you do too. I really hope you do too. But anyway, he said, yeah, you know, how do you think I should handle the situation? And when he told me about it, I was like, dude, that's a serious situation. And my advice is to handle it like this. And he said, oh, that's good advice. Okay, great. So I checked with, I checked in with him like two weeks later, three weeks later, said, hey, how's that situation going that you asked me about? Oh, I haven't done anything about it yet. I said, bro, no, 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 no. You, you have to handle that situation. That's a situation that you're the pastor. You're the shepherd. You can't just sleep on that situation. You need to involve yourself in that situation. And so I'm not a pushover for him, and he's not a pushover for me. You know, he, he's, he didn't just get to ask my opinion, and I gave him something that he, you know, he's like, yeah, no, you're right. That's good advice. But it's not easy. It's not always easy to execute the good advice that our good friends give us. And so we need that. We need those kinds of people in our lives People that are also trying to see the difference between the common and the commanded, the sacred and the profane, the holy and the unholy, and people in whose life we can make a difference and who can make a difference in our life by the Spirit. I hope you enjoyed that lesson. I had a great time. 
nowhere near an hour, nowhere near under an hour, but it is what it is. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, help us to distinguish, to discern, to discriminate in the sense of discerning between the right and the wrong, the sacred and the profane. And Father, we're so thankful that you are a God that tells the truth, a God who is himself the truth. Didn't Jesus say that? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Father, help us to, in our own situation, in our own lives, not to flatter ourselves or deceive ourselves into thinking that we are something that we are not. Father, help us not to believe our own hype. And Father, I pray for every person here that they would find that community of people, that church, that tribe of people that they can surround themselves with, and together they can march, march forward with Jesus and toward Jesus. Father, what a beautiful thing. Life is amazing. Lord, I love my OT with DA community, and uh, I just pray that you would infill us with your spirit. Make us the men and women that you've called us to be, the parents that you've called us to be, the spouses that you've called us to be, the sons and daughters that you've called us to be, the neighbors that you've called us to be, the community members that you've called us to be. Make us those people, Father, courageous, compassionate, wise people by your spirit is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.